I don't normally start with Tolkien, uh, but I'll nerdily start with Tolkien today. And I'm going to ruin the end of the whole trilogy, if you are, don't mind. If you haven't seen The Lord of the Rings yet, sorry. So in the end, at the end of the trilogy, of, and when you have the return of the king, you have this tremendous moment. And you have this, this, this ranger, Aragorn, who you start finding out is really the heir to, to sort of the throne. He decides sort of at the end of the story to, to take all the sort of human soldiers left and go march on Mordor, which is this evil kingdom empire that has more soldiers and more everything than what humans have left. And so he gets to the gates of Mordor, and they are absolutely outnumbered on all sides. There's no way they're going to win by all accounts. There's just so much. Um, they're so overwhelmed. They're surrounded on all sides by Mordor's army. But as a viewer, as you're watching the story, you also know something else that's happening. And you know that Frodo and Samwise are inside the volcano where the ring can finally be destroyed. And so you as a viewer are, are like, they're totally overwhelmed, but I know what's about to happen. And, and you know victory is about to take place as soon as that ring and Gollum himself finally ends up in the lava of Mount Doom. And, and so I, there's a little bit of that, I think, in what is happening in the story and probably happening in our world right now. And there's a lot of moments of very doom and gloom of like, what is the church right now? Why does it feel like the church is losing? Why does it feel like culture is winning? Why does it feel like all that? And there's a lot of language. There's a lot of talk about that. At least among certain demographics, the church is decreasing. People are leaving. They're losing influence. There's all sorts of scandals, all this kind of stuff. It can feel bleak. But I think a story like today is actually like a peek back into the volcano to go, no, <laughs> Like, victory is still at hand. It just may not look like we look, like we expected. And there's a lot of background into today, and I only got so much time, so let's dive into that. Because it starts with, now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi. So let's talk about that. I want us to put our imagination hats on a little bit and walk with Jesus. That Jesus has spent most of his time in Galilee with his disciples. He's, he's spent a little time in the Mediterranean, but most of the experience of Matthew up till now has really been in Galilee. It's really been in their own home turf for the most part. And then Jesus says, hey, we're going to go north. And, and kind of far <laughs> to the north. Uh, here's even a map. Uh, Caesarea Philippi is actually quite a bit out of the way. Uh, it's quite a bit north of the Sea of Galilee. Actually, when Leah and I and our family were there a couple years ago, we decided not to go up to Caesarea Philippi because it felt so far out of the way. Because not a lot happens in the Gospels up here other than this story. And Caesarea Philippi is a unique place. And at some point, you'd be like, all right, well, why is it called that? Well, you had Philip, uh, the son of... Herod uh, the Great, Herod that tried to kill babies in the Christmas story. His son took over this region in the north, and uh, he wanted to make buddies with Rome, and so he named the city, as a good megalomaniac would, after Caesar and after himself. Uh, and so we're going to dedicate to Caesar, but I'm going to dedicate it to myself as well. And so Caesarea Philippi became the city. And so you would head north, you would journey, you would have traveled uh, sort of the, the, the north end of the Jordan River, heading to areas where basically the Jordan River starts, where there's some springs that come out of the ground, and you'd become in the outskirts of Caesarea Philippi, which would look something like uh, probably this. 
So this is sort of the outskirts of town, probably in the ancient sort of painting imagination of the world. And you would pass all sorts of temples in this city. There were temples to Baal, even though Baal wasn't even worshipped that much anymore. Temples built by Assyrians, temple built by Phoenicians that still stood to that day. And remember, this is a place, um, as I just said, this is kind of where Jordan sort of starts. There's a spring of water which has fertility gods like Baal written all over it. Fertility gods provided life. Life was connected to water and the gods. It was connected to crops and rain and everything else. And so um, when there's a spring coming up out of the ground, there's a lot of thoughts that this is where the gods actually dwell. This is where they come from. As the Israelite, there's some old stories, too, connected to this place. Do you know there's more than one golden calf story in Scripture? Um, you actually have one of the kings that secedes David and Solomon uh, when it starts becoming a big mess of kings who build two golden calves and send one to the northern kingdom and one to the southern kingdom just so they can worship. And so the thought was this area is where the northern calf ended up as well. So you're, you're a disciple walking to the north and you're like, where are we going, Jesus? And so this is the city. And then you would end up in a very specific place, possibly in the city, and it would be this. It would be Pan's Grotto. So if you remember the picture of the city, there's actually quite a rock face on the, on the top of the city. And this is that rock face. This is that area, the Pan's Grotto, a unique place in the world. This is where the water would actually spring up itself. So there's a cave right behind one of those temples. The water actually would spring up out of the cave uh, and flow out. There's actually a lot of thought that that temple didn't actually exist there, but that's another story, another time. Philip uh, built a temple to the Caesar here. So there was Caesar worship certainly happening uh, in this area. There was a temple to Pan. Uh, Pan was sort of, uh, the Greeks certainly didn't favor Baal worship. And so Pan just sort of replaced it. Pan was the god of shepherds and crops and stuff like that as well. Um, and in tied with that was also a, uh, the lord of a lot of sexuality. Uh, there was a temple to Hermes. Uh, so if you know your Greek mythology, Hermes is sort of the connecting point between the world of the living and the world of the dead, or Hades as it would be called. There were courtyards for all sorts of rituals. There was a place of the dancing goats. So next time you buy your coffee, just remember. One of it might have a very pagan name. Um, there were carvings in the rock faces with various statues and idols. So if you go back to that picture, you'll see like little carvings that, were, that are still there to this day in, in the stone face that uh, statues and other things would, would exist in. Uh, it was even called the rock to the gods. At least 14 different gods were worshipped in this city. This is probably like the most polytheistic pagan place near Israel that Jesus possibly could have taken his disciples. Worship of Pan, all sorts of gods. Uh, and there's even a word we use for like noisy, wild disorder or confusion. It starts with Pan Demonium, right? Pandemonium, which was likely a, a festival tied to the worship of Pan. It was a lot of R rated things would happen. There'd be various giant statues built for male body parts. Uh, there were various acts that would happen with animals as part of that. Uh, I'll leave the description at that. And, and whatever happened this past Tuesday in New Orleans doesn't compare to what would happen at Pandemonium. Or Las Vegas this past weekend wouldn't compare to Pandemonium. This is the backdrop. This is Caesarea Philippi, the city that's very out of the way, this unique city where we're only going to get a 15-verse interaction in. But why this place? Why here, Jesus? The Decapolis was already enough for disciples let alone coming to this place, what is Jesus possibly trying to teach? 
Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say the son, or who do people say the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Um, I talked about this a little bit when John the Baptist died. I don't think the expression is as if they think these prophets are necessarily reincarnated. Uh, Perhaps it's more expression of this person, the, the son of man is acting in the manner like like this person, or they remind me of this person. And Jesus is going around preaching, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? Which is going to sound a whole lot like who? John the Baptist, right? Yep. He's prophetic. He's calling people to return to their God uh, and called his people uh, to to what they're supposed to be. He's even uh, healed a widow in Sidon. So who would that sound like? Yeah, but not only that, but he has been speaking about the, the Roman class and speaking really about, instead of about overthrowing the people that are, that, that are ruling over you, actually blessing them, loving them, which is going to sound a whole lot like another prophet in Jeremiah, who says, seek the peace of Babylon, seek the peace of the city that you're actually in. So everyone has a hot take on who this Jesus could possibly be. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And it's such a crucial question, right? Who do you say Jesus in? I would say there's no more important question that all of us have to ask in some ways. Who do you say that Jesus is? And if Jesus were here today, we're asking you, Brandon, who do you say Jesus is, right? Those sort of questions. Jen, who do you say Jesus is? Stephen, who do you say Jesus is? personal. It's a really important question for us to wrestle with and ask. Simon Peter, who often speaks for the disciples, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So you are the Christ, or, uh, which is the Greek for Messiah, as we kind of talked about before, this king that everyone expected to come and, and reestablish the kingdom of Israel. This is not necessarily the super um, unique identification. Jesus has been identified this plenty throughout his Gospels. Uh, So when Jesus responds to Peter, it's not necessarily, I think, the Messiah piece. That's the point. But he says, but the son of the living God. And this phrase, living God, exists in the Old Testament just a few times. One of those is as Joshua is about to enter Canaan and wipe out the Canaanites, uh, the, the phrase living God is certainly an identifier for God. Perhaps Peter has that in mind because we've just had that conversation around how Matthew is sort of transitioning almost to the Canaanite moment of the story of the Exodus. Or maybe Deuteronomy 5, the Israelites are standing there saying, we heard everything you said, God, and we will obey it. And God's response in that moment is, oh, I wish... You declare that to be true, and I hope that's actually true of you. And perhaps that's in play of how Jesus even responds to him. But it's a unique identifier for Jesus. In some ways, recognizing the living God is embodied in Jesus himself in some ways. He certainly doesn't understand that in its fullness yet, as the gospel will continue to play out. But there's something unique about what Jesus, or what Peter has identified here. And Peter, Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So you haven't just deduced this on your own. Something spiritual has revealed some of this to you. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So let's talk about some of this in traditional understandings. If you were Catholic, how do you understand these verses? 
Yeah. Peter is what will eventually become the secession of popes, right? That the, that the thing that Jesus is praising in this moment, the rock that he's going to build his church on, is Peter and the secession of Peter from that point on. Peter is the key holder himself. Now hear me. This is partially true in some ways. Peter does become the, one of the main leaders of the early church, uh, even, even Paul will refer to him as a pillar of the early church. He's constantly the mouthpiece for the apostles. Uh, like at Pentecost, he is the one to speak, even though they are all filled with the Holy Spirit. We get Peter's recording of this moment. And so Peter certainly has a unique sense of authority over the, over the early church. I'm not denying that at all. Now, how much that, that, that just gets carried on to somebody else, that's a whole other conversation. Now, Protestants or evangelicals, how, do, how, do, how is that traditionally interpreted around Peter and who the rock, what the rock is? Has anybody heard this text preached before? Yeah, faith, or like Peter's confession. Like the, the confession that he is Lord, that is what the church is going to be built around. Uh, it's a good confessional people. And once again, I don't think that's wrong. It's good Protestant confessional theology around what is happening here. But both of these stories, or both these interpretations, make sense wherever you are on, on, in Israel, right? This whole conversation could have happened anywhere possible, and it would be, okay, it's totally, that totally makes sense. It still doesn't get to, why are we in Caesarea Philippi for this? And what might Jesus actually be referring to? Because he's gonna say things about rocks and say things about the gates of hell, that actually have a very direct, like, geographical tie to this city. Because where and how is Jesus really building his church? Now, remember, Jesus, as a rabbinic person, tends to teach around objects that are probably likely around him often. Whether he's teaching around fig trees, he's teaching around plants, he's... It's not uncommon that rabbis would walk along and go, oh, here are the birds? Let's talk about birds and how God takes care of them. Hey, those flowers are... Let's talk about flowers and how God takes care of them. Now, he doesn't always do that, but perhaps that is in play here. But Jesus says uh, to Simon, I tell you, you are Petros, which is a stone, small rock. That's, that's, it's not a, maybe it's rocky, rocky Balboa. You're, you're Petros. And on this Petra... It's a different word, which is another reason I don't think he's actually referring to Peter. Petra, this cliff face or bedrock, I will build my church. So he doesn't use the same word to refer to Peter. It would have made more sense if he said, I'm going to call you Petros, and upon Petros I will build my church. But that's not what he does. This is another word. Sounds similar, but it's actually a different word. And perhaps he's referring to the giant physical rock face place that Caesarea Philippi was actually known for. And to keep driving this point home is the very next line. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. To be clear, uh, the word hell, we cover this quite a bit in our hell sermon. Uh, there's a word for hell that's commonly translated uh, from the word Gehenna. Uh, and that happens all over sort of New Testament, or not all over, in, in the moments it happens in the New Testament. Gehenna is hell. This word is actually Hades. It's not hell. And... To be clear, the gates of Hades was a literal place in Caesarea Philippi. There's sort of four gates of Hades throughout the Greek world, and this was one of them. It's the place where Hermes has his temple, 
where the place of, of death, Hades, and, and life would actually be connected, the underworld. Hence why you would have a, a temple to Hermes there. And, and, and if water comes up from the earth in an unknown way, it's not falling from rain, it's somehow coming up from the spring, then that must be where the gods come from and where they go during winter months. And remember, coming off a big lesson about going to the Gentiles, which has been the last few lessons for Jesus, perhaps Jesus is teaching his disciples and us an important lesson. That yes, there is a world of sin and disorder and chaos and darkness. And pandemonium itself probably would have represented that. Abusive pagan practices of all sorts of reasons. And Jesus brings his disciples here to say, this is where my kingdom's going to go. I'm going to bring my kingdom, my peace, my redemption to places like this. And he's going to create a people. This is the first time Jesus uses the term church. An ecclesia, a gathering of people who will build a people. He will build it, who will bring light to a dark place like this. And when you think of something gated, particularly around kingdoms, what do you picture? Yeah, walls, things like that, right? I even go back to Lord of the Rings. It's like um, one of the major battles in the story in the second book is, is Minas Tirith or um, Helm's Deep. Uh, you, you have these, uh, Helm's Deep's in the second book, Minas Tirith's in the third. For all you geeks that were about to correct me. Um, <laughs> um, and so you have, um, you have these great battles, but you have the kingdom that has its walls up. And, and the bad guys, at least in those stories, are on the offensive. They're trying to get after things. But the picture Jesus is giving is not of the bad guys attacking the church. The gates of Hades, even though Jesus is referring likely to a very specific place, but the place of death is the place that's gated, not the church. And the picture then is that the church is on the offensive and not the defensive. That Jesus is building an assembly of people in order to drive out the darkness in order to defeat the enemy wherever he may be found. That's the business Jesus is in. Jesus is about to wind down his ministry. Like this is sort of, we're starting to get into the tail end of Matthew in terms of timeline. And it's as if he said, look, I've taught you for three years. But the main point that you should have learned is that the mission is to leave here and to go into the world, wherever the enemy is, and bring the gospel, the good news. This is why he would go on to say, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Like I said, um, it wasn't Samuel, it was Isaiah. That was my fault. Um, I believe this is an allusion to Isaiah 22, where you have a king, number two, wasn't doing their job, and the king appoints a new successor and the keys to the kingdom. And Jesus, I think, is looking at his disciples, saying the same thing. My servants haven't been doing their job. Pharisees, Sadducees, everybody that was sort of Having, holding the keys in some ways to the kingdom of Israel weren't doing their job. And Jesus is looking at the disciples and saying, you are going to be the gatekeepers. You are the ones who are going to open up the ways to the kingdom by going and proclaiming and showing what the kingdom is like. And they will be responsible for making decisions of what is good and right and true. There were those things that were clear and agreed upon. There were those things that were left unclear, and they had to decide things. And 
those Pharisees, I think Jesus would be simply saying, those Pharisees have failed at understanding what Yahweh was actually about, what the law was intended to do. They have binded and loosed really poorly. And you guys are going to go. And you've seen me. You've seen the Father because you've seen me. And you know how to bind and loose correctly. You know how to take these truths and work them out. And I trust you to do so. And this continues with you and me to go into the world, to see places where the enemy, where evil, where things are not of Jesus' kingdom, that, that, where, where things, the enemy still has a foothold. And we go there and we do something about it. I mean, to, to look at business and industry, say That's, that doesn't look like Jesus' kingdom and be light to those places. To look at media and say, here's where that doesn't align with Jesus' kingdom. To be salt in those places. Look at education, the judicial world, government, commerce, family, sexuality, gender, race, art, music, and go, go on the offensive <laughs> around anywhere that the enemy still has a foothold. That's what we're called to do. Now, there's means and manners to do that well, and there's ways to do it really poorly. That is another sermon, because it will take a long time to unpack. But this completely gives meaning and purpose to everything we walk into. We, day in and day out, have interactions with the world that are not neutral. Opportunities left and right by the power of the Spirit to lighten dark places, to bring truth to lies, to, to bring the real to the false, bring hope to hopeless, and to bring life to death. And when we read and hear people say that the church is dying, secularism is taking over the world, we can stand here, based upon Jesus' words, and go, those are lies. Jesus is the church builder, and he's still building his church. We might just be too American at times to recognize that. Because let's look at some facts, just from the last couple years of stats. Religious faith is growing faster than the irreligious. It may not feel that way, but it's true. There are fewer atheists identified around the world today at 147 million than there were in 1970. And Gordon Conwell report expects that number to continue to decline into 2050. Christianity continues to grow at a rate of 1.17%. Almost 2.56 billion people identify as Christian around uh, the middle of a couple years ago when the last report came out. By 2050, it's expected to top 3.33 billion. That growth is fastest in the global south. Uh, so um, it tends to be South America, Africa, and most of Asia. In 2000, 814 million Christians lived in Europe and North America. So majority uh, were still Europe and North America, while 660 million Christians lived in Africa and Asia. In 2022, 838 million live in the global north. So it continued to grow, while almost 1.1 billion Christians live in Africa and Asia alone which doubled in the last 20 years. Christianity continues to spread out. In 1900, uh, 95% of Christians lived in a majority Christian country. So all Christians tend to live in a country where they were only around a bunch of other Christians. In 2022, that number has fallen to 53.7%. So about half of Christians live in countries that aren't majority Christian anymore. And by 2050, most Christians, 50.4% uh, around the world, will live in non-majority Christian nations. The percentage of non-Christians who know a Christian is climbing. In 1900, only 5% of non-Christians would identify and say, I know an actual Christian. That percentage is now up to almost 20%, and by 2050, um, it should just pass that. And so one in five people would say, I, I actually know a Christian on this planet. More than 90 million Bibles will be printed this year. Um, 
and continue to be translated into languages that have never been translated before. Jesus is building his church and will build his church. If you turn on Fox News, you may not hear that Jesus is building his church, but Jesus is building his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail. Where is Pan? Where is Hermes? John Milton, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, all these poets actually pick up a lot on this story to tell beautiful poetry where they reflect on that. They say, where's Pan? Pan is dead. He's very concepts. But who's alive? It's Jesus. So take heart, church. Although it could feel like darkness is gaining ground around us, Jesus is building his church and light is coming to darkness. This is a total moment of encouragement to these disciples who are like, I don't know. <laughs> Jesus, I don't think your kingdom, he, Pan's Grotto, you think that your kingdom's gonna take over Caesarea Philippi? Have you not seen the, the 14 other gods everybody worships around here? And Jesus is like, no, I'll build my church. And these the gates of hell, death, all this stuff, it's not going to win the day. So, who do others say Jesus is? We live in a world of many distorted views. What are some of the voices, the hot takes? Jesus the Republican. Jesus the Democrat. Jesus the social justice warrior. Jesus the Calvinist. Jesus the philosopher. Jesus the victim. What are the popular perceptions or misconceptions? But the more crucial question still remains, who do you say Jesus are? Jesus is. How much have you created Jesus in your own image or a preferred image? Maybe we're influenced more by the world's voices. Do you interpret Jesus through Paul or Paul through Jesus? Do you have a Jesus that aligns with everything you want to believe or a Jesus that actually constantly challenges some of your beliefs to be shaped into his image? This, I'm going on a slight tangent. This is why the spiritual disciplines and spiritual formation matters so much. Because at some point, I get 35 to 40 minutes with you. Some of you are like, that feels like an hour. No, it's, look at the podcast, it's like 35 minutes with you. Your phone gets hours with you every week. The world gets so much more time in your head and in your thoughts and your eyes, your ears, all the time. And at some point, we have to ask the question, what, how are we being formed? And what do we do to counterform that? And perhaps reading ancient words, praying ancient prayers, spending time doing the things that God's people have done 2,000 years plus to be formed into the image of God, to spend time with our Savior in prayer, to, in silence, in, in all the ways that God has given us tools and disciplines to actually be shaped in a way that is counter to the world around us. So we see him clearly. Do we really see him as the king of kings, the son of the living God, or have our views been clouded by noise? Because in the midst of things like Caesarea Philippi, there were so many different expectations of Jesus' kingdom as well. And to his disciples, he's throwing them off by saying, I'm going to build my church here. It's this, it's this kind of rock, this pagan rock that my church is going to take over. 
And do we declare this of Jesus, Jesus the church builder? The one who has defeated and will ultimately defeat death in the end and nothing will stop it. Take heart, church. Pan is dead. Zeus is dead. Caesar is dead. But the church is still alive because Jesus is alive.